back. Um, just kind of remember where we're going here on this thing. Uh, 13 lessons. Lesson one, the Bible. Number two, how to know the Bible. Three, God and his, his character and attributes, the person of Jesus Christ, the work of Christ, salvation. We'll talk about then lesson seven, the person and ministry of the Spirit, prayer in the believer, the church, fellowship and worship, spiritual gifts, evangelism, lesson 11, lesson 12, obedience, lesson 13, God's will and guidance. So just a, a basic introduction to the Christian faith, and we're on lesson one, the Bible, and and you know, as I think about this, I, I think we're just going to kind of go slow, we're not going to go super, super in-depth on everything. This isn't going to be a theology class, like a full theology class, but we're, we are going to just kind of take it slow and, and look at things, and, and uh, I hope it's helpful. It's also meant to be an interactive class at times, so I'm going to give opportunity for questions. So if I'm teaching and you're going, hmm, what, what is that thing, or, or you want some more information about something or further explanation, then... Um, then uh, feel free to ask me that or, or put up your hand. And if I want to say, let's do that later, I'll, I'll just let you know that. But just feel free to put up your hand uh, at any time and ask a question. So lesson one, introduction to the Bible. That's where we are right now. Is this working good, Daryl? I'm, I'm hearing differences in my voice, but we're, are we, we're good? Okay. So remember last time we talked about how God has revealed himself. God is a God who communicates with his people. And he's revealed himself in two ways. The first way was general revelation. Anyone remember what general revelation is? Constance. Good. The existence of God and his creation. Yeah, great. The, God has revealed himself to us through creation. And that is in a way that everyone can know and understand every, doesn't matter what language you speak, you can look at creation and you can know that God made the world. And so there's this revelation, this uncovering that's happening generally through kind of nature and the constitution of man. That's how we typically think about it. So it's, it's through nature, through the things that are made, through creation. We can look at creation and know that there was a creator. And then also, when we look about how men are made, we can see that there's a creator as well because we have, what do we have in us that tells us uh, uh, about that we were made by a moral lawgiver? What do we have in us? The conscience. Great. The conscience. Almost sounds like your wife's name there. <laughs> so the, the conscience um, is in us and, and because we have that, we know that God is a moral lawgiver. God has created us with this conscience. But we needed something more than special revelation. We needed something more than general revelation. We needed some special revelation. What is, what is that? What is special revelation? Anyone want to? The word of God. The word of God. Special revelation. God's personal disclosure of himself to us through the living and written word so that we might come to know him in salvation and glorify him through our lives. So who's the living word? What is that talking about? 
Christ. Good. The living, the living word is Christ. And the written word, what is that? The Bible. Great. Thanks, guys. That's great. Now, in this class, we have a horribly frightening thing that we do every time, every lesson, is we have to memorize a scripture verse. And if you look at the one in your book, you're going to get it wrong because that's the NASB. So this is the ESV is what we're doing, memorizing. Does anyone, um, well, let's, let's see if we can do this together. All is, is, in, is inspired. Kevin's reading the, the NASB. Um, <laughs> I, I'm always like promise I won't embarrass anyone. And then like first thing that happens, I'm just like embarrassing people, right? So um, all scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that's where it ends, thankfully. But if you want to go into verse 17, that the man of God may be equipped. And there's another word about kind of like equipping. For every good work. Equipped and, hmm, I brought my Bible. So let's look at, let's see if we got it right. Actually, we got it right there. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Great verse. Um, so, yeah, make sure you memorize that. And I think we'll do this, like, I think we'll, I think we'll kind of go back and review and stuff at, at times. So, all Scripture, this is a very important verse about Scripture. You want to know the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, really has everything that you, you want to say about the Bible. All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable, teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So today what we want to do is just do more general introduction to the Bible. I just want to kind of introduce you to the Bible. And let's just start like this. Let's, let's just, um, let's do some hand actions, Okay. Um, how many, this is the hand action that I'm looking for, something like along this, how many have read the entire Bible from cover to cover? Okay, great. Some people aren't sure. So um, I, would, I would highly, highly, greatly encourage you to read the entire Bible from cover to cover. And once we do this class, I think it'll, it'll actually help you because there's there's parts where you might read and you're going, what in the world is going on here? And, and this introduction will kind of ease you into that so that you kind of have a sense of what's going on. So what, what we're really asking tonight is, how did we get the Bible? When was it written? We're not going to cover all of this tonight, but how did we get the Bible? These are questions about the Bible. How did we get it? When was it written? What belongs in the Bible? In other words, what, what books should be in the Bible? Are there books that, that maybe um, aren't in the Bible that should be in the Bible? Or um, how do we know that? What belongs in the Bible? And then how did the Bible get to us? 
and what is in the Bible. And that's what we'll start to really get into tonight is what is in the Bible. So when we talk about how did we get the Bible, what we're talking about there is is what we're going to call the prophecy of Scripture. And I'll, I'll explain where that wording comes from in a bit. So how did we get the Bible? We're talking about prophecy. Um, when was it written? We're talking about the dating of Scripture. What belongs in the Bible? That's what we call the canon of Scripture. And we're going to talk about what they call canonicity and how we know what books belong in the Bible and which ones don't and how we, how we figured that out, how the church knows that. How did the Bible get to us? And we, we probably won't spend a whole lot of time on this, but a little bit tonight um, the transmission of Scripture, how it, how it came to us today, and then what is in the Bible, and this is going to be the overview of Scripture. We're just going to do like a general overview of what, what's in the Bible. So any, let me just stop right there and just ask, are there any questions yet at this point already? So most of these we're just we'll go through pretty briefly. We're going to talk more about the the prophecy of scripture, but but here's really our verse for this, is 2 Timothy 3:14. And uh and what we're what we're thinking about here is is kind of like in fact, what did I what did I call it just last screen? How did we get the Bible? The 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 kind of you know, what what is the Bible? What is the origin of the Bible? The prophecy of scripture? And we, we come back to our verse, that, our memory verse, and we'll just go a little bit earlier in the context where Paul tells Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul is reminding Timothy here that he has known the sacred writings, and those are really the Old Testament scriptures. That's what, that's what Timothy would have known. Somehow Timothy had access to the, the scriptures, and that's what Paul's talking about here when he says sacred writings and all, all scripture. And that word for, for scripture um, is, is really the word for writings. And, and what, we, what we get about scripture here is this, this breathed out by God. All scripture, and, and Paul's talking here particularly about the Old Testament, but this would also include all scripture that's subsequent to that. To that. Everything that is truly scripture is breathed out by God. And the idea here is that the ultimate source of Scripture is God Himself. That's why we call it the Word of God. So the Scripture is God's Word. It's, it's breathed out by God. This is a, a word that, that Paul likely made up himself. It's, it's theopneusos. It's, theos is the Greek word for God. Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit and breath. And so Paul kind of just took those two words and put them together and he's saying it's, it's the breath of God. It's, it's breathed out by God. And that's why the translation inspired in the NASB is not as good because 
When inspired is like breathed in, isn't it? When we, when we, that's an inspiration. That's an expiration. This is, this is expiration. In other words, it, it comes from the mouth of God. And that's what Paul is saying here is that scripture is, is breathed out by God. And that's why it's profitable. That's why it, it's so effective in our lives because this is the very word of the living God. And so that's what we're getting when we have the scriptures, the, the word of God. Now, the other place to show this is in 2 Peter chapter 1. And let's just go ahead and if you've got your Bible, I want you to go there because I want to I hit a little more of the context there as well. Of course, 2 Peter is the book where Peter is dealing with false teachers, false prophets. And he says, starting in verse 16, as he's starting to deal with these, these false prophets, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter's saying, hey, I didn't, I didn't make this up. It's not a myth. It, we were eyewitnesses of the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, what is Peter talking about here? What event is Peter talking about? The, trans, the transfiguration, okay? So, the transfiguration on the holy mountain. And what happened on the holy mountain in the transfiguration? Anyone remember? What happened? What was, the, what was, what was transfigured? Jesus' deity shone through. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to say it. So, so that's the glory that Peter said he saw. We were eyewitnesses of that. And then, and, and we could get this right from the text, what, what did they hear at that time? I heard somebody mouth, this is my beloved son who, uh, with whom I am well pleased. And so there was this voice from heaven. Now Peter says, I, I saw the glory of Christ. I heard the voice of the Father from heaven. But then look what he says in 19. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. The prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now, if you have the NASB, which I've been, I was kind of critiquing in an earlier moment, but the NASB translation translates this we have the more sure prophetic word. And there's a bit of a, a, a difficult translation issue right there. But whatever is going on here, Peter's making this contrast between his experience, if we could say it that way, on the holy mountain, and what he has now in the prophetic word. And what he's saying is the prophetic word is more sure. It's, it's more fully confirmed. In, in other words, Peter's saying, I would, I would rather have the word of God than to even hear the voice of God from heaven and see 
the, the glory of Christ in a personal thing. Which is really an amazing thing if you think about it. Because I think if I asked you, like, what would you rather have? The word of God, or would you rather see the deity of Christ shining on a mountain and hear a voice from heaven? Well, I think kind of immediately we'd think, well, wouldn't that be all? I would be such a great Christian if I saw the glory of Christ on the mountain. But actually, the scripture is even, even more sure, more powerful. And actually, it's a lot, there's a lot more in here than just, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so, but, but anyways, that's, that's kind of one thing I wanted to show you in this text. But let's keep going. And we have the, the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So this is just like a lamp too. Just like Jesus shone on the mountain. This is a, like a lamp shining in a dark place as well. He says that, that it's doing that until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And then he says in verse 20, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter calls Scripture prophecy of Scripture. And what he's, what he's doing here is he's telling us that this, this word was was prophesied. It was, it was spoken from God. It was breathed out by God. That's what prophecy is, is speaking forth the word of God. And, and it was a, a speaking forth of the word of God that was then, that was written down. So it's a, 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 a there's a, there's a, what do I want to call it? it it's, it's a, a written revelation from God. And it involves this gift of prophecy. And it was never, it didn't come from, the source of this was not from somebody's own interpretation. It's not like Daniel was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to just write scripture. Um, it, it didn't come from that person themselves. It was never produced by the will of man, verse 21. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what Peter's telling us again is, is that this is, this scripture is from God. And the speaking that happens in Scripture is not the speaking of men, even though it comes through men. It came through Paul and Peter and Moses and, and whoever. It, it, it came through these men, but they spoke so that the ultimate source again was from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit carried them along. The Holy Spirit orchestrated every event of, of those people's lives who wrote Scripture, and he orchestrated the entire writing of Scripture, the prophecy that they gave, so that what, what they wrote and what they thought and what they put down in the Scripture is the Word of God and not the Word of men. And so that's what we have in Scripture. We have the Word of God. And so Peter is telling us this word of God, this word is more sure even than the experience that I had on the mountain. And I, I think that's important for us to kind of recognize. It's, this is better than an experience. This is, the, this is the word of the living God written to us to reveal himself to us. Any questions about, about that? We're going we're gonna to come back later in another class, and we're going to talk about the, 
the implications of this in, in what we call inerrancy and authority of Scripture and um, the sufficiency of Scripture as well. We're going to, the, the inspiration, the infallibility, those are, we're going to come back and talk about this, but this is, this is what Scripture reveals about Scripture, that it is the Word of God, it comes from Him, it's ultimately His Word, not the words of Paul, Peter, Moses, or whoever. So God spoke through men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit in such a way that he got what he wanted in the Scriptures. God ultimately got exactly what he wanted through the personalities and um, individual gifting of the men. You know, if you, if you read the book of Luke, um, at least if you read the book of Luke in Greek, it is, it is complex Greek that like a, a, a scholar would understand. If you read the book of John in Greek, it is like basic Greek that a, um, that a new student in Greek, the Greek language can, can use and understand. So they don't, they don't have us do work on Luke until we, until we really can handle like John and some intermediate stuff even. And so, um, you know, you can see the personalities of the writers. You can see the vocabulary of the writers, of the human writers, but Ultimately, what those men wrote is exactly what God wanted them to write, and it's ultimately His Word through those men. So God spoke, God breathed, God is the ultimate source of the Bible, and like I said, we'll talk about that more later. So let's talk then just briefly about the dating of Scripture. And I don't mean like taking Scripture out for a date, Um, I mean... Um, when was this written? And this is going to be in your questions and your homework. The books of the Bible were written over a period of about 1,600 years, from 1500 BC to 100 AD, and it's written by 40 different authors about in, in three different languages. It's written in Greek, Hebrew, and a little bit in Daniel, and uh, Ezra are in Aramaic. And we'll, we're going we're gonna to do this overview, and we're going to look at the dating of this as we look at each book. But 1500 BC, 1500 years before Christ came, all the way up to about 100 years after Christ, about 70 years after Christ was crucified, that was when the last book of Scripture was written. And so there's this broad range, broad uh, different authors, but there's this unity that we find in Scripture that shows us that the Scripture is ultimately from God. You know, 40 different authors, try to get 40 different authors to be unified in what they write over a period of 1600 years. You're just, that's not going to happen. But when you see the scripture, you see that, wow, God is the ultimate source of this because there's a unified theme and a, and a, and, um, there's a, there's a singular faith that comes through in the scripture that's really of a supernatural origin. And just like you would expect if God was going to do something, right? When God made the world, how did he do? It's, it's pretty amazing, right? It's pretty remarkable. The, the, the detail and the intricacy that, that is there is really amazing. And it's the same in, in God's speech. When he speaks into the word of God, when he, when he gives this prophecy of scripture, we see that there, it's just this amazing book that you could study your whole life and just dig into your whole life and you'll, you won't find contradictions and you're just going to find 
more and more truth, more and more gold in the Scriptures as you study it. And so that, this is, I, I guess, a way to just show again that God is the author of this book. So I told you we'd talk about the canon of Scripture. How do we know? And we're going to come back to that another time. We're going to do a whole, I don't know if it's going to be a whole class or half a class, but we're going to talk about how do we know that these books and no other books belong in the Scripture. But let's talk briefly then about the transmission of Scripture. And if you have your book there, if you go to page 14 of your book, If you have the little piece of paper that I handed out, it would also have a little 14 on it. I believe on half a page. But page 14 of your book right here talks about how the Bible became ours. And it starts off with the original manuscripts written about 1500 BC to all the way through 100 AD. 66 distinct works. Some of the writers are unknown to us, but about 40 writers, we said. And they, they wrote their manuscripts. They, they wrote the word that God had given them. They wrote what they were, they were writing and uh, in these various books that they wrote. And they wrote in, in the original language, which was in the Old Testament, which was in Greek, and in the New Testament... What, whoa, what am I? That's wrong. Old Testament was written in Hebrew. I should not be doing this because my writing is so bad. New Testament then later on is written in, in Greek, um, which it's, I might as well have written that in Greek, hey? Um, <laughs> translations. Then, then, so written in these original languages, and then people recognized it as the Word of God. And so they, they copied it and they spread it around. And, uh, and it kind of went everywhere through Israel and then through the known world in the New Testament. And, uh, and so there was translations of it and copies of it that were, that were kind of spread out everywhere in the ancient world. And then it was even translated into other languages. Also um, inscribed, you know, just like if you go to the Christian bookstore and you got all these verses on on plates and pots and cups and whatever. In the same, they did that in the ancient world as well. And so sometimes you'd find pendants and, and pottery that had verses of scripture written on it. Or you, you know, there, there'd be, there's, there's all kinds of different copies of the scripture kind of spread throughout the world. And then I'm going to get rid of my uh, writing here so you can see this. Um, and then in, uh, so translated into other languages, in, in 385 to 404, a, a guy named Jerome, so this is after Jesus, after the apostles, a guy named Jerome came and, and he learned Hebrew and, he tra- and Greek and he translated the Bible into Latin. And that's called the Latin Vulgate. And the Latin Vulgate then became kind of everyone's favorite Bible because everyone knew Latin, but not very many people knew Hebrew or Greek at that time. And so the Latin Vulgate kind of became the, the primary Bible for really hundreds of years in church history. Then around 700 to 1000 AD, um, there was some English version, some English, some kind of 
partial English versions were, were written, maybe in different areas, different, different little things, partial translations into English. The first English Bible was written by John Wycliffe in 1382, and John Wycliffe, Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, um, he translated, he translated the Bible from the Latin Vulgate. He didn't have the Greek or Hebrew manuscripts, but 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 Wycliffe translated the 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 Latin Vulgate into English, and uh, and of course, I, I believe he was persecuted for that. Then in 1500, 1525 to 1535, William Tyndale first printed, um, the, the first printed English translation was made by him. And, um, and he would have used the, um, the, the manuscript, the Greek manuscript that came from Erasmus, and I don't have all that on on here, but um, so he, which which really was about maybe about I think there was about fourteen or fifteen manuscripts that that Tyndale would have used when he when he translated the first English Bible from the original languages. Then later on in fifteen thirty five and fifteen, you know, there's a whole bunch of Bibles here. Fifteen sixty was the Geneva Bible. That was a very popular translation. Uh, it also had notes of interpretation that Calvin and um, and the reformers there had done. In 1611, we have the King James version, um, which is which is kind of the the most known English version. But again, this is written from the the only the 12 to 14 manuscripts that Erasmus had. It's not written on the thousands and thousands of manuscripts that we have now. Um, that are available to us now. So the 1611 King James Version, written from the, translated from the original languages, kind of relying on what Wycliffe had done before and Tyndale had done before, um, but still very few Greek manuscripts are used, but they did have the, the Hebrew Old Testament. Then in 1885, we have the English Revised Version, which I believe is the first version to start using the the, the more abundant manuscripts that were found kind of between 1611 and 1885. And so that's the English Revised Version. Um, 1901, the American Standard Version. Then in 1947, something really neat happened. They discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they found even older manuscripts, even 1,000 years older manuscripts than they had ever found before of the Hebrew Bible. And when they, when they found these 1,000-year-older manuscripts, what they recognized is that they were basically the exact same as the manuscripts that they had from before that, which were a thousand years less old. And so the, the Dead Sea Scrolls really showed us that, especially in the Old Testament, the, the scripture that we have, the, the manuscripts that we have are very accurate and reliable. And, and that's, that's really, especially in the Old Testament, because of these guys called the Masorites. The Masorites. And I'm not going to say much about the Masorites, but they were they were so meticulous that when they trans when they copied the scripture on a page, they would because the Hebrew letters have a, a number value to them, they would they would add up the columns horizontally and vertically for every letter, and they would they would have a certain number that they were looking for. So they would they would write it all across. 
Then they would add it down, and there, there's a, maybe it's supposed to be 57. And then they would add it across this way on each line, and they would check it that way. And then they, that's how they knew if, if they got it right. And if they got it wrong, whoop, throw it in the trash, do it again. And so that's how they did every page of the Scripture. So the Masoretes really did us a, a, a treat in really maintaining the, the Old Testament manuscripts. And we see that when we discover the Dead Sea Scrolls and we go 1,000 years back and we're going, it's the exact same thing. So 1947, Dead Sea Scrolls were found and then we get some new Bibles after that. The, the Revised Standard Bible, the New American Standard Version was first translated in um, 1960. Um, the, the one that you have in this book was updated in 1995. Uh, 1973, you get the New International Version. Um, 1995, you get, the, which I just said, the New American Standard Update. 2001, the English Standard Version. And, um, and these two are the Bibles that I would really highly recommend that, that, you, that we use. I, I preach from the ESV right now. One day I might want to get the Legacy Standard Bible, which is a newer update of this. And the reason for these updates, it's not because there's anything wrong with the manuscripts or the old stuff. The, the reason for these updates is because English language changes over time. Every language changes over time. And, and so what we're, what we're doing is we're updating the translation to the way that we speak so that we have the scripture in our own language, if that makes sense. So that's what's happening there. So this is kind of a just a very, very rough and brief um, history of, of how the, the Bible came to us in English. And so this ESV came all the way from those Greek manuscripts that were first written by Paul, copied, spread throughout the world, translated into other languages, then kind of gathered again around the time of the Reformation, 1500, where Erasmus found his 12 to 14 manuscripts. But then after that, there was there's thousands and thousands of manuscripts that were gathered of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, some of them going back even to within 100 years of the, of the birth of Christ. And, um, and all of that kind of taken together and translated for us into English. Um, that's how we got the Bible. This is how the Bible came to us. Any, any questions about that? I know that was a lot. So it was the Dead Sea Scrolls that, 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 that destroyed that argument that, that they said that language is changed over time. It's not the Dead Sea Scrolls that basically said that thousands of years of difference because the identical mass up. Yeah. No, that's that's good. Yeah, I think that's right. And and then um you know, like I said, in the especially in the New Testament, and so the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls really confirm the Old Testament for us. In the New Testament, we find fragments every once in a while that are from like, uh, like 100, 200 AD, very close to the, the time of the apostles, and it's, it's right there. And again, there's, there's really, um, there's, there's very few differences 
in the manuscripts that we have and the ones that we do see where we see like, oh, this manuscript has this word here, this manuscript has that word here, it really makes almost no difference in doctrine or theology. And most of the time, you can, by comparing all of the manuscripts that we have from all the various parts of the world, you can tell if, you can tell which one would have been the original one that would have led to the corruption in the other ones that, that kind of spread from there, if that makes sense. Okay, good. Um, any other questions, Alan? Yeah. Yes, so um, most of the translations, like once, once Jerome's Latin um, Vulgate came, apparently I can't get rid of these arrows here, but once, once Jerome's Latin Vulgate came in, in 385 to 404, that was the main popular translation of the Scripture all the way until even the Reformation, the Catholic Church was doing everything in Latin. And remember, the people didn't know Latin anymore. Um, that they were using Jerome's Latin Vulgate for all those five, you know, thousand, sixteen hundred years. Those were those would have been based off of Jerome's Latin Vulgate as well. Uh, when William Tyndale did his thing in, in 1525, after, after Erasmus, who is a Roman Catholic scholar, um, discovered some Greek manuscripts, I think in Alexandria, Egypt, and brought them back. And he published, for the first time again in, in a long time, he published um, a Greek text that he had kind of compiled from these Greek manuscripts that he found. Um, but the, the church had basically forgotten um, Greek and Hebrew. Uh, Jerome went and learned Hebrew. The, he probably was a, a natural Greek speaker, but I'm not for sure about that. Um, but yeah, from here on, it was the Latin, the Latin Vulgate. And then, you know, people said the same thing that they say today. They, they, they liked Jerome's translation. They got mad at Erasmus for bringing the Greek and Hebrew. Um, and then, you know, you go over here. And uh, you can see all my scribbles there. Wow. Um, you go over here and you get the King James Version again. And, and then everyone kind of sees that as the Word of God. That becomes their favorite translation. And then they're mad that there's other translations that happen. That's happened kind of multiple times in church history because we get used to our Bible and we see it as the Word of God, rightly so. But we need to remember that the, the Word of God was written originally in Greek and Hebrew and a tiny bit in Aramaic. And, and that's what we want to get back to is the best, um, the best that we can get from, from what, in the languages that it was originally written. So um, we see that kind of throughout history that people get their favorite version and then they, um, they condemn people that would, would want to mess with that. Uh, but that's not the way. Any other questions about tra- transmission? I probably told you everything I know about transmission already there, so if you had any other questions, I might not be able to do it. Area, 
Yeah. What do you mean by things well, have been added? Okay. Yeah, so in when you're when you have the King James Bible, um you'll you'll see some differences between it and maybe the ESV or the New American Standard Bible. And the reason for that is because the King James Bible was um was produced off of those those 12 to 14 manuscripts that Erasmus published and they didn't have the thousands and thousands of manuscripts that we have today and so that's why at times you see a, a difference in fact some parts and, and and my memory's not holding this right for me but some parts of Erasmus's translation he actually back translated it from the Latin because he didn't have I think it was the book of Revelation he didn't have the book of Revelation but he wanted to publish this Greek manuscript, so he just took his Latin and back-translated it into Greek and then published it like that. And so there's, there's, there's sections where we have more information now and we know that that verse shouldn't have been there or that verse shouldn't have been there. And that's why I tell you I'd, I'd prefer it. Now it's, you have freedom of Bible over here, but I'd prefer you to use ESV, New American Standard, Legacy Standard, um, Holman Christian Standard, Christian Standard, because those Bibles are based on the fuller manuscripts. And one, one other thing I want to say here is that no ancient book has so much attestations as the New Testament and the Old Testament that we have. In, in other words, there are there's so many manuscripts that we have from all over the world that, that no other book even comes close to having that. You know, so um, it's really important for us to realize we we are... The Bible that we have is very, very close to the original manuscripts. And um, some people might want to tell you different, but there's, there's all of these versions that went all over the world, and we've gathered them up now, and we've compared them, and they're, they're all very close to the same. And where they're not the same, we can usually go, oh, well, they, you know, some scribe tried to clear it up like this, or, or, or this letter looks like that letter, and so it probably changed, and that's why over here in Alexandria they have this word, whereas over here they use that other letter, and, and we can usually tell which one is older, which one is better, if that makes sense. But again, even where we're not sure, any difference in the manuscripts has almost nothing to do with anything in doctrine, um, or anything in theology. It's not like we're unsure about the deity of Christ because it, it hangs on some questionable manuscript or something like that. Okay. Um, great. So let's start into what we're going to call here the overview of Scripture. And let's, let's start to think about what is in the Bible. What is, what is in this book that we have from God? So we're going to call it the general information on the Bible, the overview of Scripture. And let's just start right from the very beginning. Let's just kind of talk about what, what's in this book. And there's, there's kind of five things that we, that we talk about that, that happen. And, and the first is in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and we see creation. See, God made the world in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He made it in six literal days, and on the seventh day he rested. And so right at the beginning of Scripture, we see that there was a creation. 
And then in chapter 3 of Genesis, Genesis is the first book in the Bible, we see that there was a fall. And so God made man good, but man fell into sin. Adam ate the fruit that God had told him not to eat. Eve had given this thing to Adam, and Adam ate it, and that caused and created the fall of man. And so man fell into sin. God had created this good world, and man fell into sin through their first parent and representative, Adam. So there was the creation. Secondly, then there was a fall. And then the, almost the whole rest of the Bible, starting at Genesis 3.15. Let's go and look at that verse. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he starts to question what God had said, and, and he gets Eve to, to doubt, and she eats of this tree, and she gives it to her husband, and he eats of this fruit of this tree that God had told them not to eat of. And once they had, had done that, the Lord shows up in verse 14, and he curses the serpent. Then he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, your seed, and her seed, her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so there's this promise there, starting in verse 15 of Genesis, that there's going to be a coming seed. There's going to be somebody who's going to come, an offspring of the woman, and he's going to bruise the serpent's head. And really starting from that moment on, all the way through the rest of the Bible to the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, there's this promise. And the, the promise of this, this coming seed that, that's going to undo this fall, that's going to kind of bring creation back to the way that God had originally planned, and maybe even, even better than what God had originally planned in the garden. And so there's, the, there's this this promise thread that goes all through the rest of the Old Testament that, that there's this coming seed and he is going to be, um, you know, first through Abraham and then he's going to come through David and then he's, and he's going to reign over the earth and he's going to restore creation and he's going to save man who has fallen into sin. And of course, we know that that, that promise is a, a promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the fourth kind of thread that happens in in Scripture, starting really with the book of Matthew, where we are introduced to Jesus Christ. And, and, the, and that theme is the theme of redemption, the theme of salvation through Christ. And so it's promised in the Old Testament, and it's fulfilled in the New Testament. And really, we could take the book of Matthew really to Jude, and we could say that's, that's the, the story of redemption. In the, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus Christ and we, we kind of hear this history of him and see what he's done. And then in the letters that we have in the New Testament, those kind of look back on the coming of Christ and, and explain the theology of it and explain the significance of what Christ has done and explain this redemption that he accomplished. And then in the, the, the fifth and final thread that, that's in Scripture is this restoration and uh we could kind of tie that to the book of Revelation. Of course, there's other, other portions that, that tell us about this revelation. In fact, these promises end up kind of pointing forward to the restoration, and sometimes they tell us as much, um, or even sometimes these 
promises point forward to the coming redemption. Like, for example, Isaiah 53 tells us almost as good as any other place in the New Testament about the salvation that's accomplished through Christ. But, um, whoops. So, um, you know, there's, I guess I'm just trying to say there's other places that speak about this restoration besides the book of Revelation, but um, that's really the, the whole of Scripture, and, and what we see at the end is we see a new heaven and a new earth, and we see this fallen man who is, who is separated from God because of his sin, he is restored, and, um, and things are, are better in the new heaven and new earth even than they were at the beginning in the garden, and there's never going to be another fall again. And so all of this has been planned and designed by God to glorify him. So this is all for the glory of God. And that is really the theme of Scripture. If we just want to kind of take it briefly and basically, these five things are what Scripture is all about. Another way that we could talk about this is that um, at the very beginning, if you go, let's go to, um, go to Genesis one twenty six. God says there, then let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And we see then that man was made in in this creation. Man was made to rule and have dominion in the earth. And so man man was to rule. But of course, man failed to rule because of his fall in the garden. And the promise then is that man is, that this, this rule is going to be restored through this coming seed. And then we see the seed when Jesus Christ comes. And of course, Jesus Christ is the king who is going to reign, and through him, man, who had, was supposed to rule and failed to rule and couldn't rule, is now going to be restored through Christ, and, and Christ is going to be the ruler who's going to restore man so that we can rule over the earth. And at the end, if we go to the very end of the Bible, let's see if I can find this. I think it's Revelation 22, 5. Go to the very end, Revelation Revelation 22.5, let's start reading in verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. Now, think about that. What, what happened here with the fall? Man was cursed. But now, in Revelation 22, at the end of the Bible, there is no more curse. In other words, man has been restored through the redemption that's in Christ. And so nothing's going to be incursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him 
They will see his face and his name will be on their forehead and night and day, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. And then it says, and they will reign forever and ever. And so now there's this renewed reign through Jesus Christ forever and ever. And what God had planned at the beginning for man to have dominion over the earth is now accomplished through the the new man, the new representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is that is awesome. Hey, that's what my that's what my like study notes look like when I prepare my sermons. So that's great. You get to see what's going on there. So uh, any questions about that? Any questions about that? Well, let's. Let's dig into the Bible and, um, and let's, what we're going to do now is we're going to start what we're going to call a survey and we're going to start with the Old Testament. And so when we just think about what is the Old Testament, I've kind of given you a broad outline of what happens in Scripture. Now let's think about the Old Testament and the Old Testament is divided into 39 books. So if you go in your Bible and let's see if I can find it in my Bible, if you go out to the, the maybe page 3 of your Bible, you're going to have this table of contents and you're going to have Old Testament and you're going to see there most likely, I hope so, I hope you see 39 books in your Old Testament. Now, I told you we'd talk about canonicity later. If you have a Jerusalem Bible or if you have a Catholic Bible, you're going to have, uh, is it 46 books? Um, I'm not sure. Do you know? Kim, no? I, th- I think they, they've, got, they've got some extra books that I'm going to tell you shouldn't be in the Bible, and, and, but we're going to talk about that later. But you should have 39 books in your Old Testament. Now, if you have a Hebrew Old Testament, I brought my Hebrew Old Testament here, and if we go to the table of contents in this guy, and you'll notice that the Hebrew goes from right to left, and so they, the book itself goes from right to left, if, if you looked at this, you would see that there are 22 books or 24 books. And actually, I'm just noticing mine. Mine actually does divide these books into two. So there's probably, um, there's probably even more than that here. But I'm going to talk about that. There's 22 or 24 books in the Hebrew Old Testament. And so we'll talk about why that is. For the most part, these books would have fit on one scroll in the day that they were written. And so there would be these, these massive scrolls that they had, and, and one book of the Bible was on each scroll. Now the difference, why is there 39 books in your English Bible and 22 books in the Hebrew Bible? And the difference is that the, the English version separated some of the books. So in the Hebrew Bible, Kings is just one book. Now Kings is one book on two scrolls because it was too big to fit on, two, on, on one scroll, and so the English Bible has 1 Kings, 2 Kings. The Hebrew Bible just has the book of Kings, maybe part 1 and part 2. Same thing with the book of Chronicles, and, uh, and that's why. Now the Old Testament is divided, according to the Hebrew division, into three sections. There's the Torah, there's the Navim, and there's the Ketuvim. Now the Torah, Torah means Law. I'm going to scribble on this again. So the Torah means law. Uh, the Navim, that is the Hebrew word for prophets. 
And the ketuvim is the Hebrew word for writings. So the, the Old Testament's divided into these sections, and they, they, they take these three letters, Torah, Navim, Ketuvim, they, they take those three, and for whatever, I don't even know why, but they add a little A there, and an A there, and an A there, and they call it the Tanakh, the Tanakh. So the Tanakh is the Hebrew Old Testament. And um, the Hebrew Old Testament is called the Tanakh. And the first part of that is the Torah. And the Torah is also called the Pentateuch. Does anyone know why, why do they call it the Pentateuch? Because there's five books in the Pentateuch. And so there's, this is the law. Torah means law. It's called the Pentateuch. And there's five books there written by Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the five books of the law written by Moses, also called the Pentateuch. So those are the first five books of the Hebrew Old Testament. Then they, the Hebrews, they had the prophets. And so after Moses came prophets, and the Hebrews thought about their, their prophets in, in kind of two groups. They thought of the first ones being the former prophets. And I think it's helpful for us to, to realize this. The, the people who wrote the books that we kind of think of as the historical books the, the Hebrews saw them as prophets, and they saw the, the writings that they wrote as prophecy, which is, again, shows us that it's, it's from the Word of God. And so the former prophets would be the people like Joshua, the book of Judges, maybe written by Samuel, um, the book of First and Second Samuel, which they would just see as Samuel, and then the book of Kings as well. Those are, those are what the, the Hebrews called the former prophets, the Navim, um, the im ending is plural, so it's, it's prophets, and those are the former prophets. And then the Hebrews saw um, the Israelites. Oh, I got to. For some reason, this thing is not jumping. I don't know what to do when it does this. Like it's, just, it's just... what's that? Yeah. <laughs> Rob, could you press the space bar on the keyboard on the computer there? Just press the space bar.
Well, how about just hit the space bar like four more times? Let's just see. So I, you might have to like just do that for me. Um, I don't know why it's not. It's just giving me a blank screen here. So, okay, go, go on, hit the next one. Those are the former prophets, kings, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, kings. Now hit it again. Okay, hit it again. So the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12. Now the, the 12, the 12 minor, we think of them as the 12 minor prophets. They were all written on one scroll and actually, they, they flow together in a very unique way where the, the last couple of sentences in the, the one that comes before, the next book starts with some kind of a reference to that and then kind of starts. It's really actually neat to see that. But they, the, these are the, what they, the, the Israelites thought of as the latter prophets, the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve. Hit, hit space again. So sorry, Rob. I don't know why this won't do it. Well, yeah, it should, it should be like a, a Wi-Fi connection. But, um, so then the next, the next set of writings, the, the, the next part of the Tanakh, the third part is called the Ketuvim. It's the writings. And um, the Israelites had a, a couple of categories of writings. They had the poetical books. They have Psalms the book of Job and Proverbs. And then they have the, the five rolls, the megaloth, and they read these on, on the holidays, on the feast days. Go ahead and hit space again for me, Rob. Um, these five books are Ruth, Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and the book of Esther. So those are the five, um, the five rolls, the megaloth. Those are the, the writings part B. And then there's a third part of the writings. And those are the wisdom books. Or the, I'm sorry, those are the historical books. Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles. And uh, those, are, those are those three books. So if we take that all together, and if you would have added up all of those things that I just showed you, the, the groups of five and, and whatever, that, that would equal 24 books. But if you um, press the space bar one more time for me, then uh, you'll see that there's the, the way that they get 22 books is often Ruth was listed with the book of Judges and Lamentations was listed with Jeremiah. And so that's why, that's why the Hebrews sometimes talk about 22 books. Okay, next. Thanks, Daryl. So now... Let's go to the English Bible. You say, well, why is my English Bible different? And, and this is the excuse that I use that I never can find my minor prophets is because I kind of get mixed up between the, the Hebrew and the, and the Greek version. In the Greek Bible, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the translators kind of reorganized things and, and they kind of separated things. And the English Bible was first um, mostly translated from Greek because... Until Jerome, very few people knew Hebrew, and so the 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 Bible, the the you know the the Bibles that they had 
where mostly they were using the Greek Septuagint, and so they followed the... Oh, yeah, we got it fixed? Thanks. I wonder if it's like range or something. Um, anyways, they followed a different format, and so this is the, what you're used to in your English Bible. It's the same in the Pentateuch. You've got your five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The five books of Moses. Then we have what we think of as the history books, which is Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Those are the 12 historical books in our English Bible or in the Greek Septuagint. It's doing it again, yeah. The Wi-Fi is bad here. Well, it's going again here. So then after that, we've got the, the poetry books, five books of poetry in our English Bibles. We've got the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. Those are, those are what we think of in our English Bibles as, as poetry books. And then we have the books of prophecy, what we call the major prophets. And again, these are very similar. Isaiah, Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations we put there in our English Bible, Ezekiel, and the book of Daniel. Remember Daniel, the, um, they thought of as one of the writings. And then the minor prophets. Now these weren't Minor in any sense, I'm, I'm sure Hosea would have said, hey, I'm a, I'm a real, genuine, bona fide prophet. But um, he just wrote a shorter book, and that's why we call him the Minor Prophets. And again, there's 12 of these. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, <laughs> that's great, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, uh, Zephaniah. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, if I can, if it have come. Those are the 12 uh, minor prophets. So the first five books were written by Moses shortly after the Exodus, and that happened in about 1446 BC. 1446 BC. And if we can, if we trust our Bibles, then we can be very sure about the chronology of the Old Testament. And, and I want to kind of, I want to end with this. I want to kind of, I'm going to maybe nerd out a little bit for you guys here a little bit. Maybe I already kind of nerded out a bit for you, but I want to just kind of show you something here about Old Testament chronology. And it's actually really, really, at least to me, this is fascinating stuff. Um, this is, this is really cool. Um, what, what happened? Or how, how we can date Scripture. When, was, when were these books written? The way that we can date this is by matching it up with, with archaeology and um, astronomy. Okay, So archaeology and astronomy, that's, that's how we can, we can date the Bible. And then we can, we can go back and, and fill out the dates all through Scripture. So 
the archaeology in the ancient Near East, what, what we found is, is what they call these eponym lists. And the Assyrians, they would, they would kind of make these lists and they would date everything that happened every year. And, and, and archaeologists have dug up these like just tablets on tablets that kind of go every year what happened in that year. And, and what they would do is they would, they would write, um, they would, they would write at the, at the beginning of the reign of a king, they would write the king's name. And then they would write significant military campaigns that happened that year. And then they would write any significant astrological things that happened that year. And they would just kind of file that away year after year. And so, so maybe year one of the king would be the, the king's name. And then next year would be the prime minister's name. And then the next year on that, on that, when that same king was reigning, maybe there'd be, um, some outstanding general's name. And then there'd be these, with that name and that year and those victories that happened that year, there'd be this, archaeological or, or um, astronomical situations like things like eclipses that happened. And, um, and so because of that, we can fix these dates. And, and those lists were made from about 1300 to about 1600 BC. Now you can't really see what's going on on my screen. Um, but in one of those years, we're, we're told about this eclipse of the sun that happened at Nineveh. And the modern astrologers, they know that this eclipse happened in 736 BC. And so I don't, you probably can't see it here, but right here, 736 BC, the solar eclipse in the year of Bur Sagali. Bur Sagali. And now what we can do is, is we can go back then and look at what happened every year before that and kind of trace that, that back. And we trace that back in time from this, from this, um, this eclipse in Nineveh. And we, and we can go and we can find that in 853, or well, actually we could, we could start in 8, 851 BC, um, there's a, a battle between Shalmanenzar III and Jehu. And if you know your Bible a little bit in the Old Testament, you know that Jehu is one of the kings of Israel. And if you go a little bit back further from that, in the year 853 BC, Shalmaneser III was at the Battle of Karkar, and at the Battle of Karkar, Ahab was in the Battle of Karkar. And so we can, we can kind of trace this then from, from the, these, these eponym lists, and then we can go down to this line here, and we can see that 841 was Jehu's first year. And we can say that 853, that's the year that Ahab died according to scripture. And then from then on, back in time, we can follow what the scripture says if we believe the scripture. And we can say that Ahab began his reign in 874 BC. And the, the division of the monarchy happened when, when Israel and Judah were divided. That happened in 931 BC. And the division of the monarchy happened right after Solomon's reign. And that's in nine, then we can say that's in 966 BC. And then what we want to do is from there, let's just go to the Bible itself. And so I want to show you some, some verses. So we've kind of, we've, we've fixed this certain date of seven, 763 BC. That's when we know that, that there was this eclipse and, and astronomers are, astrologers, I don't, I, I don't know, one of those guys, one of those guys that looks at the stars, they know that that is the day that that happened. And, uh, and then we're, we're, we're going back, we're following the, 
the Assyrians' lists, and we're now we're matching it up to the Bible. So there's this, this kind of a double match here where we know that both of these things are mentioned not only in these lists, but also in Scripture. And now we're going back from Scripture. And, and what we're doing then, when we go like this, let's start looking at some Scripture. So, 1 Kings 11.42, at, at the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over Israel was 40 years. So Scripture tells us that Solomon's reign was 40 years. And then in 1 Kings 6.1, in the 480th year, after the people came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So there's two pieces of information here that, that, that are helpful for us. The first one is it was the 480th year after the people came out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, and that same day, that same year, was the fourth year of Solomon's reign. And so we can kind of take those two pieces of information and then begin to fill in and go back. Well, then we can go back even further if we go to Exodus 1240. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. So now we've, we've got, we've kind of, we're going back further, 430 years. This is the time that the people of Israel were in Egypt. At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So now we're going all the way back to the, the reign of Israel, the reign of Israel, the, the captivity of Israel in Egypt from the very beginning. And now we can go back even further. Genesis 47, verse 9. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of my years, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. So now we can add the years of Jacob's life to that. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. So now we know about Jacob's life. And Genesis 25, 26. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60, 60 years old when he bore them. So now we're going back. We've got Jacob's life. Now we've got Isaac's life. Genesis 25, 21, 5. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And so now we've, we've traced out the chronology of the Bible all the way to Abraham. Uh, Genesis 12, 4. So Abraham went as the Lord told him and lot with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And so we can go all the way back to the time of Abraham's birth, which was 75 years. Um, from when he departed Haran. And so if we, if we, I don't know if you can see that either, but if we kind of take all of this information that I just gave you and we just add it together. So Solomon's fourth year when he built the temple, we know that from the, from the tracing the, the chronology in Kings that that was in 966 BC. And then if we add the 480 years to that, then we have, from, from 1 Kings 6.1, then we know that the Exodus was in 1446 B.C. Maybe plus or minus a year because of the way that they, they calculated the king's years. And then there was 430 years from then in Egypt. And so we add that from Exodus 1240, and then we know that Jacob came to Egypt in 1876 B.C. 
And Jacob was 130 years old when he stood before Pharaoh. And so if we add 130 years to that, because you have to add years to go backwards when you're in BC, if you're following me on this. Um, That was 200 BC, Jacob's born. If you add 100 years or 60 years for Isaac's age, then that's 2066 BC. If you add 100 years when you have Abraham's age when Isaac was born, you have Abraham being born in 1266 BC. And then here you have to subtract 75 years to get Abraham's age when he entered Canaan. And so Abraham entered Canaan and sojourned, sojourned there in 2091 BC. And so if we, if we do that, we can be very, very specific, especially about what's very, very important is this dating of the Exodus. Um, you can always tell if somebody believes the Bible if they have the early date for the Exodus. If they put a later date there, then you know you're dealing with a liberal scholar who, who just ignores all of those numbers in the Bible. And so I think that's maybe important to show you. But anyways, I, I just wanted to kind of nerd out a little bit and just show you how, to, how we are so sure about the dating of our Bible. And again, it's because of this eponym lists that, that, and this, this kind of tying it with the solar eclipse. And we can kind of go back and see all of those things from the, the ancient Near Eastern world. And then there's these two connections to Scripture that, that are sure and are, are recorded in Scripture. And then from there, we can go all the way back all the way back to the Exodus, and even all the way back, and we know exactly when Abraham was born. There might be a little bit of question of how long was this time um, between 2166 when Abraham was born and between the creation of the world. There there might be some some tiny bit of doubt there, but it would seem that that we're talking about 4000 BC as as far as I understand. Okay, so that, that is that. And now what, what I want to do, so, so those dates that I gave you, what, what book are, were, are those all from? Or what, what section of Scripture are those from? It's okay, you can say it loud and I'll, I'll try not to yell at you. <laughs> the Old Testament, but even more specific, Yeah. The, the historical books. What do we call those first five books? The Pentateuch. Okay, so the, all of those dates that I gave you were in the Pentateuch. And um, anyone remember at the very beginning, the, there's the, those five themes that, that Scripture has. What's the first thing that Scripture has? Creation. And where do we learn about Creation. In the book of Genesis, okay, in the very first book of the Pentateuch, we have Genesis. And in Genesis, we had actually three of those things, right? What did we have? We had creation, then the fall, and then what? The promise. That's right. That's great, kids. Wow. So, so creation, fall, and promise, that's all found in Genesis, and when I was in seminary, they made me memorize all kinds of facts about every single book of the Bible. And one of the things that I, I found really helpful was this, um, a key word for each book of the Bible. And the key word for the book of Genesis is beginnings. Because we see the beginning of creation. We see the beginning of um, the fall. We also see the beginning of the promise. And who does God 
after God makes that promise in Genesis 3.15 to, um, really to Adam and Eve, where, where do we see that promise starting to be fulfilled? Who's the person through whom this promise is first kind of seen? Not Jesus yet. Yeah, Abraham, right? So there's this promised seed, and then we see Abraham. So the, the beginning of the Bible, there's, you know, you've got the, the creation, the fall, then chapter, chapter five after the fall, everyone dies. Then chapter six and six to nine, you've got, you've got Noah and uh, the flood and the destruction of man because of the wickedness of man is great on the earth. And then in Genesis nine, after Noah kind of lands back on the earth, in Genesis 11, um, we see the Tower of Babel happen. And man's languages are, are confused all across the earth. And then, now you're wondering how in the world is, is God going to save this seed because nobody can even talk to anyone anymore. But all of a sudden, then you're introduced to Abraham. And the rest of the story of Genesis follows the life of Abraham. And he's going to be the one through whom the seed comes. And then it's going to be through Isaac. And then it's going to be through Jacob. And then it's going to be through the, the 12 tribes of Jacob, and that's all told to us in the book of Genesis. And so the purpose of Genesis is to chronicle the origin and early history of the universe, the human race, sin and depravity, tribes and languages, the nation of Israel, and God's promise of blessing and redemption. And so the book of Genesis then kind of gives us the, the beginnings of Everything that, that's, that's happening there, including God's promise, starting with the promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, but really the promise to Abraham and his seed. And this was written by Moses. Genesis was written by Moses sometime after the Exodus, about 1445 BC, because remember the Exodus was 1446, but before his death in 1405 BC. So we know that Genesis was probably written sometime at that time, and it's really written to tell Israel about where they came from and why they're so sinful and um, why there's all these different languages and nations on the earth if God made us all from one person. And all of that is, is explained to Israel. And, and they know now that this promised blessing of God is going to come to them through, through their nation. And so that's the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Then the Exodus, what happens in the, in the book of Exodus? There's an there's a amazing thing that happens. It starts with the word E. There's an Exodus. Where do they, escape, where do they exit from? Egypt. From Egypt, right? Because at the end of Genesis, Abraham's descendants end up in Egypt, and they're, they're now mistreated there because that Pharaoh rose up who, who forgot about Joseph, and my thing is frozen up again. But in Exodus, um, we see God deliver Israel from... There it is. In Exodus, we see God um, deliver the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And he made them his special people to the world through a covenant with them at Sinai. And the key word for the book of Exodus is redemption. This is the, the beginning of redemption and again written by Moses probably soon after the exodus from Egypt 
Next book that we have is Leviticus, and and people often joke this is where you kind of end your Bible reading plan is the book of Leviticus. It's it's hard reading, but it's it's really a great book, and what it shows is that the God that that delivered people out of out of Egypt is a holy God, and there's a um a system put in place that's that's to deal with men's sin. Now, of course, that system only points forward to the the coming of Christ, who's going to redeem men from their sin. But Leviticus shows us that that God is a holy God and that that sinful people are going to need something to be done in order for them to have a relationship with this holy God. Um, Oh, it went for me now. As soon as I closed it. Or is that because you're doing it for me? Thank you, Rob. Okay, I'm going like... Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Okay, then, then the book of Numbers. Um, the book of Numbers is probably the next place where you're going to end your Bible reading plan. At the very beginning of the book of Numbers, there is a count of the people of, of Israel. But then because of their unbelief, the nation is, um, is not going to make it into the promised land. And so the book of Numbers, here's the purpose of it, to chronicle the failure of Israel to obey the Lord by faith and enter the promised land. And why was that? Because they were sinners, because they were fallen sinners. And the consequent discipline of the Lord, bringing about the death of that entire generation of Israel during 38 years of wilderness wandering and the preparation of the next generation of Israel to enter the land. And so what we see in Numbers is we see the unbelief of Israel, but we also see the faithfulness of God because even though all of those people died, at the end of the book, when they do the numbers again, when they count up Israel again, there's this, almost the same amount of people that are going to go into the promised land. And so we see that God was faithful to raise up the next generation. Uh, and then finally, the book of Deuteronomy, and the key word there is restatement. And what Deuteronomy does is it just kind of gives the law again. It's Moses' sermons, really. It's sermons from Moses. I think there's, um, I don't remember, maybe four or five different sermons from Moses that, that go over again everything that, that, that God had told them, goes over the law again, and it prepares this new generation to enter into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And uh, the, the, Mos- um, the, the date here of, um, of Deuteronomy was uh, probably written just very, very shortly before Moses' death. And actually, there's, a, there's even a few sentences in there that tell us that Moses died. And so sometimes people wonder if maybe Joshua kind of wrote some of those sentences in there. Uh, we're not exactly sure about that, but um, but that's what's going on in Deuteronomy. So that's that's the Pentateuch for you. That kind of gives you a general understanding of what's going on in the Pentateuch, and it's all really written to Israel, written to this generation of Israel that's that's come out of the Exodus, and their fathers died in the wilderness, and now this new generation then goes and enters into the Promised Land. And, it, and all of these books teach them how they're to live in the land that God had given them and, uh, and how, to, how to know the Lord as this nation that, that one day this, this promised seed is going to come through that's going to undo the effects of the fall. And so that's, that's kind of a survey, at least of the Pentateuch. When we come back next time, we're going to do a, a survey of the, the rest of the Old Testament. So you just have a little bit of a taste of what's there. 
And uh, hopefully it encourages you to read the, the whole Old Testament, which is really, really important for us. But, but having some of this, and if you ever want these notes, I can easily put them in a PDF, or actually I have even fuller notes um, on every book of the Bible, kind of like one page of notes, if, you would, if you're interested in that, having that one day that has the keyword and the purpose and the author, and also some important scriptures in every book, and key people in every book, and, and who they are, and what events happen in every book that, that you should kind of know about. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a few more. Again, this is the final quote from MacArthur here for tonight. He says, I hope you have an appreciation for the scripture. I hope you have an appreciation for it because it is the greatest treasure apart from God himself that we have. It is his very word, his self-revelation. When people ask me why it is that I systematically teach through book after book, why it is that I pay so much attention to detail and to every verse and every phrase and touch all the words... I tell them it's because I understand them to be the words of God revealed to us from him, and I would not second-guess the necessity of these words being then presented, taught, and understood by us all. All right, let's uh, pray. Lord, we thank you for our time together. Thank you that these uh, dear people allow me to just kind of overwhelm them with information. Uh, But I pray, Father, that we would would know your word and uh, that, that we would be strengthened in your word, that we would understand what's there and that we would grow in our understanding of it. Father, we thank you for giving us your word and uh, we thank you for our time together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.